Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for Thursday, June 16th. I'm Rubina Ahmed Haq, in for Greg Brady. And on today's show, we spoke with Sam Abdul Al-Samid, an EV expert, about a survey saying more than half of Canadians say they won't buy a fully electric vehicle. Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford spoke about Active TO and Dr. Christopher Alexander, a professor of video games at Toronto Metropolitan University, shed some light on how playing video games has an unexpected effect. Thank you for listening, and Toronto Today starts now. Electric vehicles, obviously a huge topic right now with the way the gas prices are going. A lot of people talking about whether uh, that is the best option for them, for their pocketbook, obviously for the environment. Uh, they're very trendy. Obviously, Teslas and other cars like that are uh, you know, a sign of a sign of affluence as well. If you drive a car like that, it's a very expensive vehicle. Uh, electric vehicles are often associated with that company. Uh, but over half of all Canadians asked that they are unlikely to consider buying one as their next vehicle. I was really surprised. I mean, I knew that there was a segment of Canadians that, you know, are very happy with their gas guzzlers, but I didn't think that it was almost 50%. Canadians are interested in hybrids, which offer a gas and electric combination. So maybe you don't get that... um get that fear of running out uh, of, you know, the, the of, of, with your electric vehicle. Uh, what's it called? I'll, I'm going to get our next guest to remind me what that's called when you're worried about running out of power because you've got an electric vehicle and will you be able to charge again? Um, while fully electric vehicles are getting better, the majority say they wouldn't want one that was fully electric that just plugs in simply because they would be worried about how they would be recharging it. Uh, my next guest, Sam, Sam Abdullah Salam, is an EV expert, automotive journalist, and principal researcher at Guidehouse Insights. Welcome to the program, Sam. Good morning. Nice to be with you today. What's it called when you're worried about uh, not being Range able to... anxiety. Range anxiety. Thank you very much. Yes. You know, it's, I get up at 3.30 in the morning. You have to apologize. <laughs> uh, you have to, uh, I have to apologize for not remembering that. So tell me, what is this all about? I mean, how come so many Canadians... Don't want, is it the range anxiety that's driving them to not want to buy a fully electric vehicle? I'm sure that's, you know, that's certainly a factor for a lot of people. But uh, the reality is that EVs are still more expensive as well to purchase than uh, than traditional gas vehicles or even hybrids. Uh, and you can get some very good deals on hybrids right now. There's a lot more, there's a lot of hybrids available from a lot of manufacturers and, and they are a very good solution for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, if you have to pay significantly more up front to get an EV, you will, you, you'll save a lot of money over the, the lifespan of the vehicle on fuel costs, especially when I think gas is, uh, Equivalent to about uh, eight dollar, eight I think eight seventy a gallon uh, Canadian right now. Um, that's you know you're gonna, you are going to save a lot of money in operating costs, but um, and eat, uh, you know it, it does cost you more up front. And if you can't manage the uh, monthly payments for a new car, and, and new car new vehicles have gotten so expensive, uh, especially over the last couple of years with the uh, limited inventories because of the supply chain shortages. Um, that, you know, that does tend to push you, you know, to something more affordable. And this is different than the U.S. I mean, Americans uh, are more likely to buy a fully electric vehicle. Why that uh, difference in uh, opinion, whether why we're less interested uh, compared to our American cousins? Is there any reason why that is? Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's certainly also concerns about the performance of an EV in cold weather. Um, although, you know, having grown up in Canada, you know, the Great White North is not quite as white as, as a lot of people would like 
I like it to be, like to believe it is, um, and uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, you know where most of the population lives, uh, you know, it's not uh, you know most people don't live in the Arctic tundra, so um, <laughs> we don't all know, live I, in igloos, Americans. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right. I mean, I you know I live in in the Detroit area, and and the weather here is pretty much the same as it is across most of where where most of the Canadian population lives. You know, especially across uh, southern Ontario, uh, you know, or you know southern parts of the country so it's not that radically different but you will lose uh some range when the weather's cold uh because the you have to use uh the battery to heat the vehicle uh to heat the cabin um so that's that's a legitimate concern um and again you know uh, something like a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid um might even be you know a better option for a lot of people especially if you do have to drive long distances although again the reality is most people um don't drive as far as they think they do um you know i i'm i'm not quite sure the, the current stats for canada but in the united states here in the united states uh about 90 percent of daily driving is less than 40 miles or less than about 60 kilometers a day um, and that's, you know, more than, you know, pretty much any modern EV can handle that with ease. It's only when you get to long road trips. So, you know, if you're heading up north or something like that, then, you know, it might be more of a challenge. And so I, you know, I can certainly sympathize uh, with that. You know, a lot of Americans uh, live in the uh, southern part of the country uh, where the weather is, is warmer um, and it's, it's less of an issue with, uh, with temperature. Yeah, so absolutely, you wouldn't be want to you wouldn't want to be stuck on the side of the road in Canada in the middle of winter. Uh, no matter where you are, it's going to be pretty cold. Uh, it won't be the tundra like they might think, but it definitely you're going to be uncomfortable. Um, what can we what 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 needs to happen to get people more on board with electric vehicles? Is it about putting more charging stations in along highways? What's the solution here? Yeah, I think it's a mix of things. Um, you know, first off, the vehicles do have to become more affordable to purchase. Um, and, you know, so that, so just people can get into them. Also, I think um, we need to get people into the vehicles and actually experience what it's like to drive an EV. The, you know, EVs, the, the performance of electric vehicles because of the instant torque, the responsiveness, um, I think, you know, once people actually drive one, they realize, wow, this is this is actually a lot of fun to drive. It's not just you know cleaner and 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 cheaper to operate, but it's it's really an enjoyable vehicle to drive. And um, once once people experience an EV, they're much more likely to actually want to own one. Uh, and then, of course, uh, having public charging infrastructure is also an important consideration, um, especially uh, for those people uh, that perhaps. Don't live somewhere uh, where they have access to off-street parking. If you live in a single-family home uh, with uh, a separate driveway and, and garage where you can plug in and charge every night, um, you're, again, much more likely to want to own an EV. But if you live in an apartment or townhouse, you know, or you live somewhere uh, where you, you have to uh, park curbside, um, then you need access to public charging. And so making that more available uh, is, will make it easier for those, type, those people to um, own an EV. A Tesla, like I mentioned off the top, is a very expensive car. I mean, it's something like over $100,000 to get into a Tesla in Canada. 
Uh, has that hurt or helped the electric car market where a lot of people I speak to have this sort of attitude that electric cars are meant for rich people because Tesla is, you know, the best example uh, of an electric car out there. Do you think Tesla helps move along this idea that it is a affordable option or does it keep people away from even considering electric cars? Because now there are, are ones that are that are much cheaper, obviously, than a Tesla. Yeah, um, certainly, you know, Tesla deserves a lot of credit for legitimizing the the idea that EVs uh, can be a really enjoyable um, and fun to own, fun to drive type of vehicle, not just you know some sort of penalty box. Um, but on the other hand, they are also premium priced vehicles, and because they have dominated the market, it's certainly understandable that people might think, you know, from looking at Tesla, oh, that all EVs are really expensive. And that's not the case. Increasingly, we are seeing more affordable EVs coming to the market. And over the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot more affordable EVs coming to the market um, that you know are more mainstream vehicles that both have um, you know a, a significant amount of range, driving range, uh, but come at a price point that average people can afford. Uh, you know, there are vehicles today like the uh, the Hyundai Kona electric mm-hmm. uh, and many others that are, you know, at a much, you know, started, you know, a little over $40,000 uh, Canadian, which, you know, I think for a lot of people is, is a great option. Uh, it's a great little car. Um, and there will be more coming uh, next year. Uh, General Motors is going to be launching an electric version of the Chevy Equinox, um, which, I'm not sure what the Canadian pricing is going to be, but I think it should be even cheaper than the Equinox in, in the U.S. Here, that one is going to start at below thirty thousand dollars U.S., so probably below four, you know, well below forty thousand dollars Canadian. Yeah, excuse me. There are going to be there are a lot of options now that are much more affordable uh, compared to the Tesla. Of, of course, uh, I, that was my next question. I was going to ask you: Is there a couple of examples um, of of cars that are much more affordable? Anything that you're really excited about that's coming through the pipeline in the next couple of years? Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, that that Equinox is is going to be a great one. Um, there's there's a whole range of uh, really good affordable EVs coming to the market, um, and and also EVs in a in a wide variety of form factors. I mean, um, Ford just launched the um, F one fifty Lightning. Um, Uh, uh, in in the last uh, month or so. In fact, I just had one over the past week that I was driving. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fantastic full-size pickup truck. Um, We've got uh, pickups from from other manufacturers, a lot of new crossovers and SUVs uh, coming to the market. So I think, you know, there will be options for just about everyone, uh, no matter what type of vehicle um, and what price point you're looking for. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for joining us on the program today and breaking down the results of this survey and also about what's coming down the pipeline uh, if you are interested in buying an electric vehicle. And I think a lot of people, uh, despite what the survey says, are at least thinking about it because of the way that gas prices are going. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, happy to be with you. And, and you know, as I said, hybrids are also still a good choice as well. You save a lot of money on fuel. And they may be a more affordable option and you don't have any range anxiety. Yeah, that range anxiety. Absolutely. I can imagine if you're traveling from Toronto to Montreal, you're thinking, am I going to have anywhere that I could charge this car if it stops? So uh, that taking that piece away, I think, will encourage more to buy hybrid vehicles uh, in the future. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, Sam. Thank you. That's Sam Abu al-Samid. He is a automotive journalist and analyst with Guidehouse Insights. Uh, He was talking to us about a new survey that says uh, Canadians, only over half of us, are unlikely to buy a fully electric vehicle for a lot of the reasons that we just talked about with Sam, uh, including the cost 
and also that range anxiety, that that feeling that, you know, am I going to be able to get to the next charging station before I've run out of juice, for lack of a better way of putting it? Am I going to be able to get to my destination or will I be on the side of the road uh, waiting for uh, pickup, uh, a tow truck to come and get me? The city uh, launched Active TO in March 2020 in reaction to what was happening during the pandemic. Uh, the program shuts down Lakeshore and other major streets to car traffic on weekends to give residents a way to exercise outdoors while remaining socially distanced. So obviously, this was a time when everything was shut down, all programs were shut down, there was nowhere to go, and Active TO was launched in response to that. Uh, when it was fully implemented, Lakeshore West was closed for nearly six kilometers between Windermere Avenue and Stadium Road for uh, Torontonians to get out there and get outside and get some um, fresh air and exercise and bike. Uh, if they wish to do so. Uh, now they are uh, suggesting to close uh, down part of Active TO. Council supports fewer Active TO road closures uh, in uh, the downtown West End. And this is mainly because uh, pandemic restrictions have been lifted. Traffic is getting back to somewhat normal. And also many events are back in the city, like at the Rogers Centre, at the ACC. And so all of that, of course, is contributing to traffic in our city. Some people saying it's difficult for them on the weekend to get to the hospital, uh, to St. Joe's, uh, just off of uh, Lakeshore there. Uh, I'm joined by Brad Bradford. Uh, He's a Toronto City Councillor for Ward 19 in Beaches, East York. And Brad, uh, I understand that uh, you don't support active TO uh, closing those roads down and and that we shouldn't just look at traffic as the only reason uh, that active TO uh, gets uh, whittled down uh, and less road closures uh, to allow people to socially distance and exercise. Well, good morning, Rubina, and it's it's great to be here. And you know, I'm I'm a big supporter of Active TO. Anyone that follows along knows that uh, I like to get outside and be active. I like to ride a bike. Uh, but the report that was in front of us from our transportation staff uh, yesterday at Council made it very clear that the world that we're living in 2022 is a lot different than uh, the challenges that we were facing in 2020. So the staff have gone out and look at the, looked at the volumes of cyclists and pedestrians. And again, as you said, this was a really creative and innovative way to, to get folks outside during a time uh, when we were longing for activity, when we needed to be socially distant, uh, when, when everything was shut down. So we had prolific numbers of folks using the lakeshore in that capacity. In our first year of 2020, uh, we did more than 20 activations, full weekend activations down on Lakeshore West. Fast forward to 2021, uh, it was scaled back as, as things started to come online. And today here in 2022, we know that traffic levels are back at 90 to 95% uh, pre-pandemic. Uh, we have just a, an avalanche of events and permits coming online. And so there's a lot of con- competing interests in a very uh, historically congested part of the city. And we are trying to respond as local government to, to balance those needs, recognizing the success of Active TO, but also recognizing all the great things that, that really makes Toronto sing in the summertime, whether that's Carabana or the Blue Jays games or four weeks of exhibition. Uh, we need to recognize that that stuff's back. And how can we do a better job coordinating Active TO with all the things that are going to be taking place along the waterfront this summer? Um, there is, um, you know, more activity in the city and the program was born out of, uh, you know, the fact that there was less places for people to go to get active. What's the what's the sort of justification of keeping a program going that was really uh, in response to the pandemic? 
Well, it was a pandemic response, but I think it showed us a, a different way of thinking about our streets. You know, folks often forget that our street network in Toronto is, in fact, the largest public space network. Uh, we always think of our great parks. We have more than 1,500 in the city. But if you add up all the, the space on our streets, that's public space, too. And so especially along the waterfront, the Martin Goodman Trail, an area that attracts, you know, thousands of residents, folks from across the 630 square kilometers of Toronto and, and the GTHA, um, I think it really showed us a, a different way of thinking about our road network and folks really enjoyed it. The feedback that we got from folks who were using the space said that it encouraged them to be active. They spent more time with their families. Uh, they got to see uh, lakeshore and the waterfront at a different speed. You know, it's it's one thing to be zipping along there in a car. Uh, it's another thing, of course, to be stuck in traffic. But walking down with a stroller or going on a bike ride with friends was something that was really nice. So yes, it was born out of the pandemic, but I think it showed us a different way of, of looking at that part of the city. And uh, a lot of people really liked it. So we want to continue to build on that work uh, but we need to take a balanced approach, recognizing all the other great things that take place in Toronto are back. People are excited about that. So how can we as a city try and align an active TO program with the 250 other permanent events that, that take place down there during, uh, during the summertime? And the program was very popular, The has been very popular. The first year it saw 36,000 cyclists and thousands of pedestrians access that area uh, on Lakeshore between Windermere and Stadium Road. I mean, this is not the first time that we've butted heads, uh, the, you know, the, the bicycle community and the car community. Um, what is it about biking that uh, we... That, that the city of Toronto still doesn't understand because there are so many bikers in this city and it, we, there's still this battle of finding space for those people to bike around. Yeah, you know, it's I'm, I'm an urban planner by training and I think it goes back to sort of the model on which Toronto was built on and really experienced our big periods of growth. Of course, we were a, a streetcar city at the beginning, um, but for many decades, we really focused on, um, you know, automobile use. We built highways. We, we built these wide boulevards to try and move as many vehicles as, as fastly as possible. But as we continue to grow, we know there's going to be more people here. And I think the pandemic showed that folks are going to be moving around in different ways. You know, some of our trips became very hyper local, whether that was shopping on Main Street or working from home or spending time in our cafes. So we need to, we have the challenge of trying to evolve a city that was really built around the automobile to reflect the way folks are moving in 2022 uh, and to really prioritize road safety. So that's always going to be more difficult when you're, you're retrofitting infrastructure than if you're building it brand new from the beginning. But I think we saw in the pandemic that we've made a lot of a lot of strides on there, um, you know, focusing on pedestrian safety, um, making sure that uh, our, our streets are designed to to promote good behavior and good driving practices and and also build out uh, separated cycling infrastructure so that that's a good option for people, too. You mentioned that there was a lot of support for this program. We did a survey last year, um, and in fact, the respondents indicated 92% for continuing closures in some capacity, both during and active COVID after COVID-19. So, you know, to my mind, um, it's it's something that 
we need to build on the success of, but we also need to balance, like I said, all of the other activities that are coming back online. Uh, it showed us a, a way of doing things differently in Toronto. I know change is hard for people and it can come with frustration, um, but there's lots of other jurisdictions that do this on a relatively regular basis. And what we need to focus on now is building a model here in Toronto that, that works for everybody. We're still providing great access to the outdoors and amenity space. We're taking care of pedestrians and cyclists and folks who want to get out there. But we're also, you know, understanding that there's a lot of construction in the city. There's a lot of activities going on. And, uh, you know, we need to balance that uh, with our newfound enthusiasm for getting outside. You mentioned that this has been successful in other cities. Do you have an example of where Toronto could emulate um, how it's been successful closing uh, streets down uh, to pedestrians and cyclists, and like you said, families with strollers uh, that we, that we should that we should look to towards for inspiration? There's lots of cities that you can look at, and and you know I think folks get criticized when they point to European examples. Um, they say, well, we're not Europe, but you know New York City has has variations of this program, and they've been doing that for years, even before the pandemic. Uh, I think folks would would generally characterize Los Angeles as a fairly car oriented city. Um, they have programs that that close you know dozens of kilometers of roads and and give them back to pedestrians and cyclists. I think. What we really need to do is focus on how we can do it in Toronto. And last year, we only had one street permit uh, for that, that area that was requested and issued. This year, we have 250. We know the X is coming back. We've got, uh, we've got the Blue Jays back in town, back from Buffalo, and everyone's really excited about that. But, you know, they have 81 home games. So there's just a ton of activity going on in that area. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we need to come up with a solution. And I think this is where the coordination from the city side is um, that recognizes the totality of the impacts, the construction challenges, the parking challenges, the event challenges, the sports programming, and you know, leverage the closures that we're already doing and making sure that we're communicating in advance, hey, Active TO is going to be coming up in two weeks' time. We'd love to see you down on the waterfront. If you're traveling into the city, you know, make sure that you allocate enough time or you look at transit options, um, but really do it well, do it thoughtfully, and make sure that we can balance the impacts, but also leverage the, the investment of time and energy around Active TO and make sure that we get folks outside. I wonder if it's a location issue, maybe, you know, where it is located is, is there, are there any proposals to have active TO happen in any other parts of the city that may, uh, may not be in conjunction with say a Jays game or a big event happening at CNE? Absolutely. So it's a good point. And, and I would say that active TO has kind of become the punching bag for congestion in the city, but it's really important to remember, we've only done two of these this year. And I'm sure many of your listeners have found themselves sitting in traffic uh, more than two times in 2022. So um, not dismissing the, the impacts on travel time. Those are real. We have that data. We understand it. Um, but also recognizing, you know, this has only happened twice in 2022. We're going to do a few more of them this year uh, in a balanced way. But you have to consider the traffic impacts in their totality. And at the top of that list is the construction that we have to do as a growing city that's reinventing ourselves. And particularly on the West End, there's a lot of major construction projects going on that are making it challenging. So to your question, Rubina, are there other options and areas we can do this? Uh, we do it on the Meadowway out in Scarborough. We've been doing it on Bayview. It's had a lot of success there. But I think we're going to have a conversation about 
where could we um, do an active TO or active TO variation in other parts of the city, maybe more pedestrian oriented locations, maybe, you know, and this is, uh, this is just me uh, generating ideas here with you right now, but mm -hmm. maybe somewhere around Kensington market places where you have a lot of active, uh, vibrant retail, a lot of pedestrian activity already taking place. Maybe we look at those concentrations where people already are and we just give the streets back to people because we know there's a ton of foot traffic there already. So I don't think it has to exist in the same way that we've done it over the past two, three years. I think we build on that and we do it in a coordinated way, but we also look at opportunities where we have lots of foot traffic. We have lots of people who are trying to get outside and, you know, we say, you know what, let's just give the streets back to people for the weekend, help support local businesses, help encourage people to get outside. And we need to be creative about that. Well, Brad Bradford, thank you so much for joining us on the program today and talking about Active TO and where we can go in the future with it. Uh, let's not get rid of something that's working. Let's work with what's happening uh, to keep it going. So I really appreciate your time and your insight. That's exactly it. Thanks so much, Rubina. Have a good day. That's Brad Bradford. He's a Toronto City Councillor for Ward 19 in the Beaches East York, talking about the future of Active TO. So now that we are getting back to our new normal and traffic is returning to the city, some people saying that Active TO no longer serves a purpose. Uh, but Brad Bradford, the City Councillor, uh, rightfully saying that, you know, let's not get rid of it. Let's reimagine it and keep it going because obviously 36,000 people using it every year. Obviously, there is some interest. You'll remember back in the Mel Lastman days when they used to close down parts of Young Street. I loved that. I loved being able to walk on Young Street and go to all the different festivals that are happening. I believe they would happen at uh, Young and Eglinton or down at Dundas and Young. So you could, you know, go and sort of be on the street in a place where normally it was reserved for cars. Uh, here's something else that I'm super interested in talking about because I have two kids under the age of 10. They love video games. My son is on his Switch all the time. And I have you know, done a little bit of my own research. I'm not saying in any way that I'm an expert on, you know, how I should manage that screen time with him, the kinds of games that he should be playing. And one of the overwhelming uh, things that I've learned is that it's better for them to be playing video games because they're actually active and their brain is is working uh, than to be watching television, especially uh, things like YouTube, where there is, you know, your your brain isn't as active when you're just mind, you know, sort of mindlessly watching something on the screen. I wanted to get uh, some word from the experts, though. Dr. Christopher Anderson is a professor of video games at the Toronto Metropolitan University, and he joins us now to talk about some benefits that video games may have for our children. Hi, doctor. Hello, how are you? I'm great. So am I right in assuming that, that um, if my son is on his, his Nintendo Switch, that that is better for him than watching uh, than watching just you know uh, uh, YouTube videos, which is the second thing that he likes to do. Well, that's what the data in a particular study uh, suggested. I just wanted to say I'm so happy to be back on Global, where every time y'all introduce me, you call me Christopher Anderson. It's Christopher Alexander. Anyway, oh so, my um, goodness, I apologize, okay. Christopher Alexander. It's, thank you, thank you for apologizing. Yeah. It's going to be a spectacular. It's not a problem. It's going to be a spectacular meme someday. So, <laughs> uh, the study itself looks at uh, intelligence with regard to the different to gaming compared to screen time with. Um, traditional television i can't believe i just said that and social media so yeah there are some suggestions there uh and the study was looking at kids aged what was it again nine to eight years old and it showed that the most gains in intelligence two years later over the study itself all right it was looking at that. that's my answer to your first question 
Yeah. So, I mean, that is interesting because I think this is something we struggle with so much, um, uh, understanding how much is too much, what kinds of uh, screens should we be putting our children in front of because we can't fight it anymore. Um, you know, I, I and, and one thing that I worry a lot about with my daughter, especially, is that she's always watching these very short, short videos. And I'm trying to encourage her, actually, we got her a switch as well, trying to encourage her to play video games rather than do that. Um, so what are some of the benefits uh, of children playing video games? And are there types of video games that they should be playing? I love those questions. So what I was also going to say is that the study talks about video games in general, but doesn't yet dig deep enough to particularly tease out nuance. Now, we do know that we're looking at cognitive processes, attention, working memory in specific games. We don't know the difference between a game like Animal Crossing and a game like Angry Birds, for example. Right. So once we start to dig out what equals the modification of this intelligence, I think that's where we're going to get some exciting things. We know that we can do this in fitness games like Ring Fit Adventure, which is on the Switch, which does have embedded tools to help you increase your physical activity. So that one's a little bit more tangible. When it looks at this intelligence thing, I'm interested in learning more about which specific games lead to it because maybe they can exist in a genre in and of themselves. We have games like Big Brain Academy and uh, we have games like uh, Dr. Kawashima's brain age and i'm only mentioning that because you mentioned the switch but there are other games that cater to specifically say that they cater to learning and cognition yeah so th- that i mean I-, I just mentioned that because my son has it but there's so many different gaming consoles uh, that i'm now learning about uh you know when i was a kid i i was never into video games not for any other reason except for it just it was not something that i was ever into and as as an as an adult and as a mom of two kids you know it, it's like i said it's like we we can't get away from kids and and their screens um what do you say to people like me that have been a little bit um you know it, it's even harder for for someone like me to be convinced that video games are good for our children what do you say to parents like me that's an incredible point so usually what i say to parents like you is ask your children what they're doing in their games And once you get them to describe their stories from their worlds, you'll start to learn from them what it is they're learning from. Oh, well, today I was hanging out with these folks and what we were doing was. And you're like, whoa, I I didn't know that. I didn't know that was possible. For example, there's a stat out right now that um, more than half of the users that are playing Fortnite are no longer playing the game, but building worlds for them and their peers to play around in and do different things. So some parents don't know that. Wait a second, is my child creating or are Mm -hmm. they playing? So now we're starting to see, is there a change in the dialogue surrounding video games, particularly with these online spaces where people can build communities and build and share experiences. Yeah. And also, you know, and there's a lot of games, like you said, that you can play with your family. It's not an individual experience. You can choose games where uh, all, the whole family is involved. Is there is there ways that you can that you could encourage families to do that? Like in our house, for example, Friday night is movie night. Is there a way to sort of encourage Friday night being video game night? And how would that look? Well, there are ways to encourage it. And as again, in some ways, it's inviting your children to be pilots of the discussion. Hey, what would you like to play where I can play with you? For example, with my eldest daughter, we play um, Nintendo Switch Sports together online and we not just her we are obsessed with it like <laughs> good playing, I, like I never yeah. thought about this growing up that i'll be playing online games and with my daughter it's spectacular but these types of new not too new experiences are possible it's not necessarily just a singular experience sounds like we're like advertising the nintendo switch on this particular 
segment. No, no, no. Yeah. We're not doing that. Disclaimer. <laughs> it just happens to be what I have my just children have. Yeah, that's a full disclaimer. As a journalist, <laughs> I never promote any product, but thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> But oh you're goodness. right. I think I think we have to ch- some in some ways like parents like me have to change our attitudes, right? Because I grew up in in, in at a time where video games were very new. Um, uh, my brothers played a lot of video games. We, you know, Super Mario. I remember playing that from time to time. Um, and so there was definitely some learning that I had to do about video games and u- video game usage when my children came to that age where they wanted to play more and more video games. Um, you know, where do we go from here? Like, how do we continue to send this message that video games may actually uh, benefit your children if, if played in the right way? What I love about what you said was your own openness to learning. Now, in Canada specifically, there's a report done by the Electronic Standards Association of Canada, over 61% of Canadians identify as gamers. That means that more than half of us are playing games or consider ourselves gamers. That means it can't all be bad. So learning that that's a thing, maybe, wait, what kinds of experience might cater to me? What would I like to do that will help me engage with my kids, engage with my friends who I haven't seen for a long time? There are people that are even getting married in these online spaces and video games. So just a broader education about the potential of the medium because, and this affects film and television and in some ways radio as well, the video game engines and interactive 3D engines that are being used to build video games are reshaping television film and all forms of media right now. So knowing that video games are really the spark of the future and present of entertainment is a huge step towards understanding, wait, maybe I should become a little familiar with this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was surprised to learn that there are massive conferences and award ceremonies that go along with video gaming. It's no longer, you know, this sort of idea that we have of like kids in the basement playing video games. It's a whole community that once you get involved with, you can connect with other people that are like minded. Um, should Do you think we're doing a good job in, in promoting that side of it? That is not just, you know, kids in basements. It's a, it's a real movement uh, for, for people who love to video game. Well, as much as uh, humans would like to suggest some of the negative sides of the pandemic, but what having everybody trapped inside for a long period of time did also help to highlight was the strength of video games. The fact that it's not just all the violent games that are out there. There are games that deal with depression, games that deal with the immigration experience, games that deal with learning how to cook, games that deal with just trying to find love for the first time. And then once you realize, wait a second, this is just like books. This is just like film. This is just like, oh, it's a form of entertainment. Then you can look past anecdotes from peers and friends and say, wait a second. I remember on the radio, I heard that there are these games that talk about depression. Do you know any games that talk about depression? Type that in a search engine. You'll see games like Depression Quest, you know? So the dialogue is shifting, but thankfully, and thanks for having me on, we're starting to have these conversations because there's a more of an openness to understanding that it's not not all just side scrollers. And fun fact, there are still people in basements. We we enjoy basements from time to time, but it's not all in the basement. <laughs> and uh, let's not promote that stereotype, but it's obviously, you know, a, a, a lot of times, you know, we do have to like I do have to do with my my own child sometimes say, you know, let's give it a break. I mean, it's it, even though gaming as you said benefits our children, it's 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 about happy medium. It's about doing some of everything, not just doing one thing all the time. So like you said that idea that we have of everybody in their being in their basement, sometimes you have to pull your kid away and just say get out of the basement let's do something else then we can go back maybe play a game together i I don't know whether you agree with that 
I do agree with that. When I was in my youth, we used to play a game called Virtua Tennis. Okay. And then after playing for a while, we would stop and then do go outside and play what we called Actua Tennis. So we'd go out in the heat and play <laughs> like that, yeah. tennis and then go back in and out. Virtua Tennis and then Actua Tennis and pretend to do. And that's what we do with our kids right now. They're outside pretending to do the things physically that we're doing digitally. So a lot of it has to do with, and that study as well, talks about uh, socioeconomic status and how the availability of parents to be around their kids and have these kinds of conversations also factors into that intelligence. And it's not a causal study. It's a correlational study. It's not suggesting that when you play games, intelligence goes up. It talks about the use of your time and how that does and can contribute to intelligence overall. So uh, are you better at actual tennis or virtual tennis? Where did you excel, Dr. Alexander? So fun fact. Fun fact, in Grenada, my mom was a professional tennis player. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but I, you see how I didn't answer the question? I just told you about my mom. That's it. So I'm not I'm not that great uh, in actual tennis, but I had a great teacher. Okay, very good, very good. I think that's, that's the answer you have to give, considering your mom being such a superstar when it comes to tennis. <laughs> She's going to hear this say, Christopher, you're not mentioning me playing tennis and teaching how to do it. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Dr. Christopher Alexander, that was a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for joining the program. And I apologize again for getting your name wrong. It will never happen again. Not for me anyways. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Not a problem. I don't mind at all. Thanks so much for having me. Let's give Dr. Alexander some of his uh, due. He has a PhD. His thesis was entitled Video Games and Interactivity, the Semiotics of Multimedia in Instructional Design. And he is a professor of video games. Talks about the benefits of it and how we can... Um, you know, how we have a, can have a healthy relationship with video games. It's not all about, you know, hours and hours in the basement of kids not having any interaction with uh, the outside world. It's about bringing it into your family life, bringing it into your world where it can actually benefit you and seeing the benefits of it, how it is a community and it is a way to connect with each other, especially if you play those games where many people are involved, actual tennis and virtual tennis, as Dr. Alexander was mentioning. Thank you for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck and Greg Brady will return tomorrow for a live show from 5.30 to 9 on 6.40 Toronto. Have a great day.